how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. When Sarah Goldfinger saw her first play produced, she knew she wanted to become a screenwriter. She decided to move to Los Angeles because it was better to be, quote, poor in warm weather, where she worked as a nanny until earning her first job on a new show at the time called CSI. She wanted to write character-driven stories, which led her to a spec script and then on to other shows like Brothers and Sisters, Hawaii Five-O, Grimm, Parenthood, then YA stories like Jane the Virgin, Charmed, and now Trinkets. In the latest series, Netflix's Trinkets, the story follows three teenage girls in Portland, Oregon, who meet at a shoplifter's anonymous meeting. In this interview, Goldfinger discusses how to create a cozy writer's room, why writers should lean into their skill sets, the difference between writing as a group and as an individual, the benefits of groupthink, and how YA genre stories can best approach their audience. If you enjoyed this interview, please look for the print version on the Creative Screenwriting website. In college, I went to Hampshire College, and everybody has to do a thesis project. And for my thesis project, I wrote a play. And until that point, I had only written prose or you know short stories and poetry and the things you write in college. And um, when the play got produced in a little festival, it was like, my words out loud and people had to come and sit in a seat and actors had to memorize, you know, and it, it was like, wow, suddenly the writing turned three-dimensional. And I was like, okay, I want to figure out how to do, how to have my words out loud more. And I spent the summer after graduating from college trying to decide if I wanted to try to move to New York and be a playwright or try to move to LA and write for television. And I realized that it was easier to be poor in a warm climate. <laughs> And so I, I only wanted to live in New York City if I could do it with money, and I didn't have any. So um, I moved to L.A., and I worked as a nanny and a personal assistant for, like, about 18 months while I took coffee meetings and all the stuff you do to try to figure out how to break in. And 
one of those meetings, somebody called me and said, are you still looking for a writer's assistant position? And I said, yes, absolutely. And um, I interviewed for the, the position and became a writer's assistant on this brand new show on CBS called CFS. And so it sort of skyrocketed my career. And like, I basically stayed there for nine years. I was an assistant for two and a half years and then a writer for six and a half. And um, it was, it, it was incredible. And I think sort of the end of an era of television um, because it, just with, you know, 29 million people watch CSI on any given Thursday, and there's just nothing that gets that kind of quorum anymore. Um, but it was not ultimately the kind of TV that I wanted to write, so I was really desperate and hungry to write character. Um, so I wrote a piece of material that was, you know, more more likely to get me uh, some character work, and it did. I then worked on Brothers and Sisters. And then kind of after that sort of went, all around and worked on character-driven shows and worked on some more procedural crime television and worked on some things that were more comedic. And, um, but that's ultimately, yeah, how I got started. I would say that. Did you have any, (laughs) any like known connections in LA or like what kind of made you take the jump? And then like, um, was there anything else? Like, did you give yourself a certain amount of time? Like if I don't succeed by this date or how did you kind of, what was your mentality in moving and, and taking that little risk or everything? Yeah. I think this is the, the hubris of being 21 is that I, I had no car and $800 in the bank and I bought a one way ticket and was like, I'm not coming back. Like I'm going to figure it out. Um, and I, you know, I would say to anybody who's, <laughs> Being a nanny is a really good way to move to a new city because, in, in my case, I was I lived in for the first year or so, and so you know you drive their car and you live in their house and you just save a lot of money. And um, I had kids who were school age kids, so while they were in school, I would take my coffee breakfast meetings, whatever. You know, oh, so and so's cousin's hairdresser used to do TV a few years ago. Do you want to meet with them? And you know, the answer to that is always yes. Uh, so I, um, I, I guess I just sort of didn't. Sounds ridiculous. Like failure wasn't an option, but I, I just, again, being 21, I was kind of like, well, I'll work it out. I'll figure it out. And there was just a drive towards it that um, I, I knew no one. I literally knew no one. Um, and the person who ultimately knowing people on CSF up was like a fifth cousin who I'd never met before, who, you know, I'd known his grandmother on the East Coast kind of thing. And he'd read, and, and, but, but it was like a, a slow gathering of information, right? Like at the time, sex scripts were still a thing that people wanted. So you would, you know, write an example script of a show that already existed. Those have kind of fallen out of favor and people really, I think, just want original material now. But at the time, that was a thing. So at one meeting I learned, okay, I want to write, you, you need to write a sex so I wrote a set of Sex in the City. And then at the next meeting, somebody said, you know, do you have anything I can read? And I said, I have the spec script. You know, like it was just a slow gathering. And then people, I learned, you want to be a writer's assistant, not a PA, because PAs are like out in their car running around, but the writer's assistant gets to be in the room with the writers. So it was just this kind of slow gathering of information. And it's funny because while it was happening, it felt interminable and like it would never end and it would go on forever. And the truth is, it was only about 18 months. So it, I, I, I was lucky and driven, and I think I, I just 
didn't think about not to see it. Like, I was sort of a code, and I was going to figure out how to crack the code and get over the wall and make it happen. Was there any, I'm just looking at your like IMDb page. I know you, you kind of worked on CSI in 2004. I think you started selling screenplays maybe um, a couple years later. What were some of the things you were, you were learning along the way? Like in addition to the logistics, like what, what did you kind of, maybe some misconceptions about writing character or writing TV? What were some, some of the things you learned early on? Writing character has always come naturally. I think, I think a lot of writers and character, um, but working at CSI, which was funny. I mean, I was writing Sex in the City, Sex, and loving Gilmore Girls. But, you know, everything I liked was sort of girly and and femi and whatever. And then I worked on this big sort of hardcore muscular procedural, which seems like a, a bad fit, but it really was like going to plot school. Those episodes are incredibly tightly plotted, and they're like sort of crossword puzzles where it only works when everything clicks together. Mm. And um, so I was I, that that was a huge addition and you know gift to my toolbox. The tools as a writer was to learn how to think so tightly. Um, and, you know, that's a show that's episodic, right? So every episode can be sort of a standalone. So you, rather than doing big, long character arcs, you're creating the problem and solving the problem all in 42 minutes. Uh, so it was, it was good for me to, to learn how to do that. That was the, the plot skills were a big deal. Um, and then also just, you know, time in a room and exposure to how the how shows function and how rooms work and, you know, hierarchy of producers. And I, I will say on CSI, Cheryl Mendelson was the showrunner, and she had grown up in the Stephen Cannell world of television and so was really committed that every writer should learn how to be a producer. And so I did things on CSI as a story editor that I didn't end up doing as a co-EP on other shows. Like, you know, on CSI, all writers went to set and followed their episodes through on set and all writers um, were in post and gave notes on their cuts and sat with the editor and worked on, you know, reshaping scenes and things like that. So that was huge. And I don't think, I guess I just thought every show was like that and that's how it went. But a lot of shows are not. And if you have a very active, you know, in-house producing director, they often handle all of posts and you don't go in or, you know, or a showrunner who just wants to do it by themselves. And so it was a huge learning experience in every way. And uh, I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that I later then worked on shows where my rank was higher, but my responsibilities were fewer. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of an interesting, interesting thing. Um, yeah. Um, well, you know, TV itself has, has changed a lot, especially like in the last decade. But you, you kind of mentioned you're like you're mainly in the YA genre, I would say, or like the young adult crowd. Is there any limitations to that? Like, like as far as like finding success in your early twenties, are you still attracted to the same material, or do you find that TV itself is so diverse you can kind of, you know, write about whatever storylines you want to write about? Like, it's not it's not as limited as it used to be in terms of genre and that type type of thing. Yeah, I, I think I know what you like. I, there used to be a time where YA, I think, was a little bit of a ghetto. You know, sort of once you were there, you didn't leave and you didn't 
go anywhere else. Um, and that's not true anymore. I mean, I, I also think I had only recently, and they sort of Jane the Virgin charmed trinkets have I kind of crept closer and closer to that YA version. I think, you know, when I was writing Brothers and Sisters and Parenthood, these were kind of growing up adult shows. And then the crime shows I worked on are obviously sort of adult content. But I don't feel limited by YA. I think it's come a long way. I think there's some, in some ways, they're great stories to tell because coming-of-age stories have inherent drama, Mm -hmm. right? And if it's the first time somebody's done something or friendships are so important so you can really mine a lot of has a lot of draw you know there's it's um it's a great space to work in because it makes it easy you know the smallest thing can be the biggest deal Mm -hmm. and sometimes when you're writing that's a that's a fun place to write from uh and i i don't i don't feel limited i mean i think i also think teenagers in general, their lives are a lot more sophisticated than they once were, and I think their access to media is a lot wider, so they have sophisticated taste as well now. And I and I like, particularly with, with trinkets, I like that we didn't talk down to them, and we assumed that their lives were complicated and sophisticated and, you know, that they have a lot going on. And I mean, you know, I feel like my soul... Is I, I have a, a joke that the soul is always the same age, and that if you're 50 or you're 30 or you're 90, there's a, the part of your inner soul is always a certain age and a certain, you know, and, and the rest is just kind of intelligence and facts and things put on it, but there's kind of an inner wisdom that's always there. And I, I think it's nice that TV is no longer, or in many cases, is no longer underestimating what children and teenagers are capable of thinking about what their lot, you know, the inner lives are just as messy and complicated. So, yeah, no, I don't feel, I don't feel limited. I, in, in some ways it's a, it's a boon because you can, like I said, mine those small moments in a really big way. Do you find there are certain rules? So you mentioned Jane, the Virgin charmed and then the trinkets. Are there certain rules you look for? And then also there's certain like, responsibilities with these shows like you want to be entertaining but are are there also you know lessons or moral issues there and that type of thing because of the audience might be younger that watches it i mean it's funny i I mentioned them all as a group but they're three very different shows Mm -hmm. right like i think the jane audience is anyone from teenagers to you know older older women i think it's probably skews mostly female but lots and lots of people my age like that show too so um uh, I mean, diversity and inclusion is, has obviously been a thing that's come up a lot in those shows. And I get, you know, that's a matter of timing too. Like that's the last three things I've worked. So there, you know, we're also in a, 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 an era where that's more important to people. Thank goodness. So, uh, you know, it, those shows have all had leads of color and, so that, that's been an interesting thing. Do I feel more of a responsibility? Uh, I think the right answer is yes, but the truth might be no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it really just comes down to story and, and where what your characters lead you. And I think, I mean, I think in many cases, Jane the Virgin, definitely because of Jenny Snyder-Ehrman and the rest of the writing staff and Gina Rodriguez, like it had a definite feminist bent, mm-hmm. which was great. Um and I think 
trinkets had so much diversity and inclusion. You know, one of our leads, two of our leads are biracial. One of our leads is gay. What, you know, like there, there was just a, a lot. And it was Portland, right? So that's also kind of a an interesting city. And if you're trying to paint a realistic portrait of teenagers there, they're they're a little more woke. They're a little more grown. They're a little, you know, they, they have just, a, a, I think, a deeper awareness than, than maybe, you know, kids in other places that might be less progressive or less alternative or, you know. So in some ways, the shows lead to that based like, on a whole variety of factors. And I think the storylines, you know, we did a, we did a beautiful story with Tabitha and, who's a biracial, half-black, half-white character on trinkets, and she gets profiled in a store while shopping, which is ironic because she is a shoplifter, but she doesn't happen to be shoplifting that day. And she's with her mother, and she and her mother have a long conversation after the profiling about, you know, what it means to be a black person in America and to walk into a store and, you know, instantly be deemed as somebody who doesn't belong. And, uh, you know, the, the, the conversation between the character of Tabitha and her mom in the car was very interesting. We ended up, you know, the, the two writers, Courtney Perdue and Sandy Saidu, wrote that episode, and they are both black. And they obviously had a lot to say based on their experience and things like that. So they wrote it, and then, but they're in their 20s, and then there was... Uh, um, you know, Joy Bryant, who played Tabitha's mom on the show, had a bunch of thoughts. And Aoka Shinjiro, who is the director, had a bunch of thoughts. And everybody is a different generation. And each of them had different thoughts based on the generation they come from, which was fascinating. Mm -hmm. And so the scene really ended up being a mixture of all of those people's thoughts and how we kind of, um, you know, and, and sort of what advice do you give as a parent to your child, you know, as a, as a person of color speaking to your child who's a person of color, like what, what can you tell them? And at the end of the day, it was kind of a um, sort of a shoulder shrug. And a, I don't know, I keep hoping this problem will get better and it doesn't. And so like, I don't have good advice for you. You as the next generation are going to have to figure this out. And that was an interesting place for us to leave it because in television, you always want to kind of you want the parent to say the right thing, or you, you know, you want it to, you want one scene to move the next scene forward. And, and like that thing that that person said to me makes me do this. Right. And it was an interesting choice to leave it on. Um, I don't know what you should do. You need to figure it out. And so, um, and, and then she ends up talking to a, a black peer at the high school and, and kind of finding some bravery and ends up, leaning into her blackness and getting her hair braided and, you know, it, it becomes a big thing. So in terms of do we, I don't think we felt pressure to tell that story, but I think as a writer's room, we discussed it and we thought, you know, we didn't really deal with the fact that Tabitha is biracial in season one. It didn't, it didn't come up as an issue. It was, I mean, it was clear that you saw both her parents, but it just, you know, she was wealthy and there was some insulation to, to her situation. And I think, even, you know, this was last summer, so it was a year before kind of everything that's been happening lately, but it was, we, we knew we wanted to deal with her race. And I, I think that that was, you know, in the same way that we were dealing with Elodie's sexuality. So, so I guess I don't feel like, 
I don't think we sat down and said teenagers need to see this and we need to do this for the youth of America, but it was more like this particular character we've, you know, sort of ignored an entire aspect of her life and mm. we should really be talking about it because it's a big part of her identity. And so, it, you know, it came from character. Let's talk a little bit about, so the, the description is that these teenage girls meet at Shoplifters Anonymous. Um, do you feel like you have to create empathy with these characters? I mean, shoplifting is very minor. We're kind of just, you know, that teenagers like to toe the line among things. They've got their own stories and dramas, as you mentioned. Um, do you feel like you need to show good and bad with some of these characters? Or like, how do you, how do you want to present a teenager today? Do you think about, you know, anti-heroes, good and bad? How do you kind of think about some of these when creating characters and drawing out storylines? Right. Well, Chewie Smith wrote the book that the, the show that Trinkets is based on. And so she created these characters. And I think she's very good at um, thinking about the complications of, of people, particularly young people. And, you know, good people make bad mistakes. It's, you know, kind of a, 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 a you don't want to glorify shoplifting or make it seem like it's a really good idea. Um, but if you didn't get a rush from it, people probably wouldn't do it, right? So that so you have to kind of walk that line of, okay, I just did this thing and I got a rush from it and it's very exciting, but then it has terrible consequences on the back end or my parents are really mad at me and threatening to send me to rehab. Or um, And I, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with a lot of different kinds of addiction issues. And I think the shoplifting thing was a fresh way to talk about that and to talk about 12-step work, and um, which we also leaned into more heavily in season two than we did in season one. Um, and it was, I think it was good to show people struggling with their own demons, right? And that's, that's true at any age with any addiction or, you know, so... Um, and that forgiveness is a huge part of 12-step work and, you know, asking for forgiveness and, and trying to forgive yourself. And, um, you know, so I, I think no one is free from making bad decisions and making mistakes. And, and I think the drama of trinkets is how do you sit with those mistakes? How do you live with them? What are people's responses around you? And how do you grow past it, you know, try to grow out of it, grow past it. And where is it coming from, right? And in, in our show, Elodie's dealing with the loss of her mother, and I think she feels really angry with the universe. And it's kind of like, if you took this away from me, why can't I just take anything anytime? Mm-hmm. And so she's coming from a little bit of, like, an FU place. And then, um, you know, Tabitha has a lot of tension with her parents and trying to figure out, and I think it's a little bit of a cry for help with her, you know, her family's wealthy. And so there's this kind of, like, if you're not going to love me properly, then I'm just going to shoplift and spend money and, you know, do things that uh, will maybe draw your attention. And in the case of Mo, not to, not to ruin anything, but she's not actually a shoplifter. She, and she, she ended up covering up for her brother, who did a bad thing, who had some strikes against him already, and she didn't want him to go to jail, so she covered and said she did it. And then she started going through the motions of the program mm-hmm. and ends up making these best friends and so kind of wanting to be a part of it. And season two, we started her, you know, down a bad road of if you're surrounded by this 
do you start to think it's okay or does it make you want to try it? And she tries it and the girl and, and Elodie and Tabitha who are very um, obviously deep in their, in their own addiction really strongly come back at her and say like, we don't want to be responsible for having ruined you. Like, don't do this. Don't go down this road. And she, you know, pulls back. And so I, I think, um, I mean, I guess the public will decide, but I think we did a nice job of showing it realistically and that it does have a bit of a a psychic rush, but ultimately it, it, it's more harmful than good and you will end up needing to do a lot of self-examination to get better. Let's talk a little bit about the logistics. You mentioned, um, you know, obviously the importance of diversity with characters and also writers. Outside of the novel, though, what kind of research goes into this uh, story for Trinkets, and how is the writer's room set up? Like, is it mostly conversation-based, or just what's, what's kind of the process like? Mm-hmm. Um, I come from a background of heavy room action. Like, I think not all, you know, some shows I know the writer develops their own idea and approaches the showrunner and in a one-on-one meeting they sit and discuss it and say he you know he or she says yeah that sounds good go write that or go write the outline that's not i grew up in a world where you break story in the room in in pretty big detail right like you you don't there's no blank page anxiety in the rooms i've been in because you leave with really detailed notes that are fairly easy to turn into an outline um and trinkets with no exception. You know, we, we worked uh, very hard in the room. I mean, we, we had some nice things. So in the, in, you know, typically a writer's room meets in an office building. And one of the first things I asked for when I when I got the job show running trinkets was to, could we meet in a house? You know, at any given time, there's only about a dozen people that make up a writer's room. And that includes assistants and, you know, script coordinators and all things like that. So um, we ended up renting a house, and it really made for a nice vibe. You know, in the morning, everyone was going to be in the kitchen that was actually a kitchen and not sort of a makeshift office that had been turned, you know, that had a microwave and a, you know, a fridge. So there was a really nice sort of congenial atmosphere, and the bedrooms had all been turned into writers' offices. So there was almost a bit of a, like a commune or a collective or something like that. So it was a really nice. Uh, vibe and very homey and cozy. And then when we went to break story, I think there was just sort of um, a, a comfort level amongst us to. to uh, it, it felt familial. Yeah. So, so I think, um, and I think the best creativity happens in when people are feeling comfortable. So we, so that's in the, the writer's room vibe. And then we would. Uh, we, we, so at the beginning of the season, you're asked to do a season pitch to the studio and the network. In our case, it was Awesomeness TV and Netflix. And so <clears throat> that is a, that's an interesting thing to have to do, particularly with a 10-episode, half-hour show, because you're really only talking about five hours of television. Um, and, you know, coming from a network world where you're talking about 22 hours of television, five is, to me, it was very manageable. Um, and so in the first, I guess like it sounds crazy, but in the first two weeks of the season, we had pretty much mapped out the entire season and pitched and then, you know, pitched it and it was very well received. So 
we had a pretty strong roadmap of what we wanted to do and where we wanted to take the characters from the beginning. And then it just became episodically fleshing things out. And, you know, the other advantage to working in streaming is that you can write almost everything before you start shooting. So if you do need to make changes or you've decided that this particular character needs to be introduced sooner or, you know, whatever it is, you can go back and do that because it hasn't already been shot. Um, and this was my first streaming show. So it was, a, it was really a, a huge relief and advantage to know that you could still go back and it wouldn't be too late to change things. Um, uh, so that's, so, so once we had our roadmap, it really just became, okay, now we have to, you know, what, what exactly, what chunk of this is happening in episode one, what chunk of it, you know, how do we, what's the dramatic ending we can do, you know, are we going to lean into holidays or are we going to avoid that where, you know, time moves really slowly in trinkets over the course of two seasons. We decided it wasn't even really a full, it was basically just a full semester for 20 episodes. So that was also kind of interesting in terms, you know, every show moves at different, a different pace. Um, and so, yeah, and then just assigning episodes to write, you know, who's going to write what episode, who matches this material, who feels like the right person to tell, you know, who wants to do the robot caper and who wants to do the show about Tabitha's identity and who, you know, and so you start to figure out who, who would be the best fit and then break it as a group and write it as an individual. So that, that was, that, that's a really good system that I think works very well, you know, that a writer goes off to write and then comes back. And this was actually the first show where we did punch-ups. I'm not used to that. I'm not, I don't spend a lot, I haven't spent much time in the half-hour world. Mm -hmm. And the writers were encouraging me to do it, you know, where you put the script up on a screen and somebody's scrolling through and you're reading it as a group and you say like, oh, that joke could be better. Let's, who's got a better pitch on that. And I think that I am so sensitive that I kept saying, I think it's going to be mean. I think people are going to get their feelings hurt. I don't think this is a good thing to do. And the comedy writers in the room were like, I assure you, it won't, we're still us. Like, it won't get mean. It will be fine. And so we did the punch-up, and it was so fun. It, you know, it was like, it, it's a, especially because it was such a kind group of writers that you could, you know, it, it didn't seem like you were saying the script was bad in order to punch it up. You were almost, you know, so invested in it being great that you would make a better joke or you would, you know, and then it's always that fun, like the whole room bursts out laughing and you're like, well, that's the winner. Mm. Uh, you know, so um, that was a really fun new part of the process that I hadn't done before. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that was our writing process. In terms of research or things like that, I mean, obviously we had all read the, no the novel that Kiwi had written. And I also made sure that everyone had visited Portland. So mm -hmm. if you hadn't, I, you know, helped facilitate trips up there just so you could, I think a sense of place can be very important. And we had the advantage, you know, so many shows, you film in LA, but you have to make it look like New York or you film in Toronto and you have to make it look like, you know, Michigan or what I don't, you know, like there's always, yeah. you're always trying to do something that's not the real thing. And filming Portland for Portland seemed like such an advantage and such a great thing to lean into. And they did really well in season one, there were you know, bridges and bars and things that if you really got a sense of place that I wanted to make sure that everybody had a familiarity with it. So people took trips up there and, you know, did research and sort of like just had a fun weekend where they were just kind of told to 
look around and see what you see and find cool locations and, you know, just absorb the culture and come home and tell us all about it. Uh, so people did that. And um, nobody shoplifted anything for readers, as far I really like the the house idea. I haven't heard that before. Uh, maybe with comedy teams who are, who are always writing together. But do you have any other advice for us? Let's say someone has maybe grown up and written some movies and maybe some spec scripts, but ma- mainly written alone, though, like themselves in a room. When they're entering the writer's room and it's more of a discussion, any any advice about how to kind of make that transition and, you know, make make your ideas heard, even if they're uh, maybe someone who's more prone to having ideas alone later or something? Like, how can they kind of balance those two worlds of being a TV writer? It's funny. When I started 20 years ago, it was always like the, the feature people were more in the vein of, you know, what you think of as a writer, like mm-hmm. cigarettes and whiskey and sitting by themselves and being kind of miserable and, like, you know, just taking it all on. And, and TV writers were those who wanted a stable income and wanted to show up to an office every day and were willing to play a team sport. And, you know, a, and obviously those lines are really blurring now with how much TV is getting made. And I think just there's more to do in the TV world than the feature world at the moment. So, um, yeah, so you have to kind of like socialize those people who were, who were not wanting to work in a group setting. Um, I mean, for people who are just starting out in ter- you know, like beca- trying to be a staff writer, I always say, cause there's a tremendous amount of pressure. You're in a room with, you know, typically people who have been doing it a really long time who are really good at it. And I, I always say it's like double dutch where you're watching the two jump ropes go faster and faster and faster. And you're like, when am I going to jump in? When am I going to jump in? How am I going to say something smart? And then you hope that you can jump in and say it and that the ropes don't get totally tangled and like derail the conversation. Uh, and so there's a lot of pressure. But the thing I always say to staff writers is you're getting paid about a tenth of what the highest level person in the room is getting paid. So if you say one tenth of the smart things that they do, you're okay. <laughs> Because I think sometimes the, the the impetus can be, oh, I have to say so many smart things because I, I have to, like, earn this money or make a name for myself. And I, I think staff writers can fall into one of two categories, like those who talk too much mm-hmm. and, and put too much out there because they just want to get noticed and, they, and, and it, it can slow things down. Um, or those who don't talk at all because they're feeling shy and they're worried or they don't, you know, what if they don't say something smart? And I think... The, the best thing to do is to listen and, you know, especially at the beginning and try to understand the culture of your room. And is it something where the creator or showrunner has all the ideas and just wants a sounding board and, you know, people to, to kind of say yes or no, or is it a room where they want genuine participation from everybody in the room and everybody, you know, and it, is it a room where rank matters? Because I've worked on both kinds of shows, you know, where if you're a, an executive producer or a co-EP, you talk a lot. And if you're a lower story editor or staff writer, you should probably keep your mouth shut, you know, like, or shows where rank doesn't matter and everybody talks and the best idea wins. And, you know, so there's, I think learning the culture of your room is always a good thing to do a little bit back on your heels and a little more, observation and less participation. And then once you understand the culture, you you can then, I think, participate a little bit more because you have a sense of, and, you know, what pitches land and what don't and, you know, oh, people. You know, I, I've worked in all kinds of rooms, but I, I think 
there are certain times where people get pigeonholed of like, oh, that person's always going to have the funniest line and that person's always going to have an emotional pitch and that person really knows how to write young women and that person, you know, but, but I, I think being good at everything is obviously the, the, the best way to go. But I, I think there can be sometimes figuring out what your niche is or where you do your best work. Uh, you know, and, and is that in dialogue pitches or are you good at keeping a lot of story in your head at once so you can think about, okay, this, this, this in episode five, we want there to be a turning point, but we're only in episode three, so are we burning through too much story? You know, like mm-hmm. there's, there's structure people and there's dialogue people, you know, I mean, obviously, again, good to be good at everything, but if you have a particular skill set, I think sometimes it can be helpful to lean into that so that people can say, oh, yeah, you're really good at that. Keep picking that kind of stuff, you know? So, um, yeah, I think not taking up too much airtime and having, I mean, because that's always the thing is, you know, people who needing to be well socialized and, and uh, reading a room and being able to feel the vibe. And I think many writers are intuitive, but if you have written alone all the time, sometimes I think the instinct is to just, well, I need to know all the answers or I need to have it all worked out. And this is not how TV functions. You know, it, it's a, it, there's a lot of group think and that, you know, the group idea gets you there, which I love about it. I love how organic it can be and that, you know, I as the showrunner could walk into the room one day with an idea thinking this is how it's going to go. And then the room talks about it for 20 minutes and it's a whole new place that the story's in, which is, you know, and it's a better place. Or, you know, something I never could have imagined on my own. So I think that group mind can, that hive mind can really generate the best, excellent work as long as there's like a steady hand at the wheel so that everything kind of feels of a piece. And that is our show. Thanks again for tuning in. If it's your first time, make sure to hit that subscribe button on SoundCloud or iTunes. Also check out the new video essay series on YouTube called Creative Principles and give us a review. That's one of the best ways to help share these interviews. Thanks again.